I missed a prayer request. Hmm. I might fit that in later. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2, we're going to be reading the first eight verses. This is the word of the Lord. Give it your reverent and careful attention as I read to you, because God himself speaks uh, as his word is read. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all sorts of men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all sorts of men to be saved and to come the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, testimony born at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Amen. Pray with me. Oh Lord, we thank you for being a speaking God. Um, You could have just left us and let the creation speak to us, uh, and we would have to glean from it uh, what we ca- what we could about you, uh, and you would have been in your rights to not speak any further than just by what you had made. But Lord, we rejoice that you indeed do speak, have spoken, continue to speak through your uh, written word, read and preached. We thank you that... Um, Life is found in the pages of Holy Writ um, because Jesus is found in these pages. We ask that you would, we would see Jesus this morning afresh as we study this passage together. Uh, use this passage to instruct us, to um, rebuke us if need be, encourage us, um, bless us, and, and bring honor to yourself, please, through my preaching and our listening. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, I imagine that uh, most of you children uh, like, if not all animals, at least some animals. Is that, is that right? If you like 
dogs or cats or guinea pigs or whatever. Do you like like animals? Especially furry ones? You like them? Good, good. Yeah. Um, some people really, really like certain animals. Um, there are lots of people around us that we would call them dog lovers because they just love dogs. There are people who maybe aren't dog lovers but are cat lovers. Probably fewer of them. Uh, but uh, that's my impression anyway. I'm a big fan of cats, but uh, most men are not. Anyway, there are cat lovers out there. Quite a few of them. And they love all sorts of cats. Big ones, small ones, you know, uh, uh, tabbies, uh, you know, patch, patch-colored uh, cats, um, old cats, young cats. Same with dogs, dog lovers. They just love all dogs. There isn't a dog they don't like, regardless of how big it is, how small it is. They just love dogs. There are probably guinea pig lovers. That, that's their favorite kind of pet. And I had, by the way, at one point, I had uh, I had thirteen rabbits and almost as many guinea pigs one time when I was a kid, when I was a kid. I kind of liked guinea pigs, and they were all different shapes and sizes and colors. Uh, and I I could be called a guinea pig lover when I was a kid. Perhaps there's a certain animal that you really like. But my point here is, kids, is if you're a lover of an, of the animal of some animal, you don't really care so much how that animal looks, right? If you, if you like dogs, you pretty much like all dogs, right? Well, kids, and this is a bit of a stretch to make this comparison, but God is a lover of people. And God is a lover of all sorts of people. All kinds of people. All categories of people, as this text very clearly says and teaches. So listen for this as I go through this. That all is going to come up quite a bit in this sermon, the word all. And I'm going to explain that a little bit further. Uh, but you need to know and understand that uh, God cares about all humanity. Not just certain varieties of human beings, but all kinds of human beings. And we are too as well. Just a reminder of uh, this uh, epistle that we are in. Paul wrote this. He was, wrote it to uh, his uh, companion and missionary companion and protege, uh, Timothy, who is now pastoring at the church in Ephesus. And he wrote this letter. Paul did somewhere between uh, 61 AD and 67 AD. We can't be quite sure. Uh, where, but it's in that uh, time frame. And he's writing to Timothy to instruct uh, the young pastor uh, in Ephesus concerning his duties as a pastor to his congregation. There were false teachers, as is so often in the case in the early church, actually in the modern church too, come to think of it, uh, false teachers in and around the city of Ephesus were fomenting trouble amongst believers there that, that Timothy had spiritual charge over. And Paul is directing Timothy how to tackle these troublemakers uh, and how to deal with them and what he needs to do, among other topics that he covers as well. But that's a big part of what this letter is about. But uh, this passage that we're looking at, uh, verses 1 through 8, is 
really has two things that at the foref- are at the forefront of this passage, two points, and they are my points. And so here they are. The first is this. God desires all categories of people to be saved. It's the point I just made to you children, by the way, just a moment ago, uh, essentially. God desires all categories of people to be saved. And secondly, God desires all categories of people to be prayed for. God desires all categories of people to be saved. God desires all categories of people to be prayed for. First, he desires all categories of people to be saved. To be saved from what? What does it mean to be saved? It means to be saved from the enslaving power and tyranny of our sin. And to be saved from the dreadful penalty which we all richly deserve on account of our sin, which is eternal damnation in hell, where God is in his wrath. We all deserve that. Not a single soul in the, that has ever lived in the world save the Lord Jesus. That singular man uh, uh, did not deserve, uh, did not was not a sinner, uh, but all the rest of us are have been and are and will be before Christ returns. But he says there in verse, um, I'm actually going to cover the uh, the material in the latter portion of this. Uh, section that we're looking at, and then the second point is more focused on the first half. So if you look at verse 4 there, well, starting in verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires, and I'm just going to read from the New American Standard at this point, all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. To be saved is to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul is using those two phrases uh, synonymously. Essentially, they they mean the same thing. Um, he's he's using them interchangeably, I should say. Um, so to come to the knowledge of the truth is the same thing as being saved. And by this way of describing salvation, coming to the knowledge of the truth, Paul is emphasizing with that phraseology the cognitive, intellectual uh, aspect of being saved, because it involves cognition. Um, although the Holy Spirit can regenerate uh, uh, an infant in the womb, and the cognition comes later for that infant. Uh, 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 John the Baptist, case in point. But at any rate, uh, it, it involves cognition. And uh, uh, coming to the knowledge of the truth speaks of that element or that aspect of what it means to be saved. Specifically, what is that knowledge that we need to come uh, uh, uh need to have in order to be saved. Well, the knowledge means is reference to knowing and understanding uh, the person of Jesus Christ, so who he is, what he is, and the work that he accomplished to placate the judicial wrath of God on our behalf and purchase our forgiveness and reconciliation with him. That's what it means to come to the knowledge of the truth, to be saved by coming to the knowledge of the truth. And the text tells us there, in verse 4, that God desires all men, New American Standards rendering, to be saved. Now, by his use of the word all here, the apostle means not every last man, woman, and child on the earth, let alone every last man, woman, and child uh, that has ever lived. No. What Paul means clearly here is, and and the word, the Greek word, 
pas is, is readily translated and often needs to be translated this way, and this is one of those places where it needs to be translated this way, as all sorts, all kinds, all categories of, uh, of men. Now, and then when he uses the word men here, by the way, and I hope you don't need me to tell you this, but he means human beings, not males in, in distinction from females. He means human beings when he uses the word anthropos, men, here uh, in, the, uh, in this verse, in verse 4. So he desires all categories, all sorts, all kinds of human beings, wherever they're found, whatever, uh, to be reconciled to him, the gracious, merciful, loving uh, God of the universe. Not just Jews, but non-Jews, Gentiles as well. Enslaved people as well as free people. Rich people as well as poor folks. Rulers as well as those who are ruled. Black and brown folks as well as Caucasians. Asian and African folks, as well as Europeans and Americans. All categories of people, God, among those categories of people, God has, uh, his elect, whom he, uh, whom Jesus purchased, uh, through his, uh, atoning death upon the cross. And God desires all sorts of human beings from these various categories that I've listed and some that I I certainly haven't. Um, He desires all sorts of people from all different categories to be amongst those whom he will forgive and spend eternity with. And the Lord desires this, we are told in verse 5, for uh, for two reasons. Notice the verse, the word for at the beginning of verse 5, right after he said, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, he says for, so he's giving the reason, the rationale, uh, or the basis, I should say, why he de- desires this. Um, and he says, first of all, he desires that all men be, uh, all sorts of people be saved, because there is one God, and he is it. Yahweh is it. For there is one God. That's the first reason he offers. By this, of course, Paul means that there are not one God, there is not one God for the Jews, namely him, and some other God for the Gentiles, for the non-Jews. No, there is only one God for all of humanity. And he is it. The God that Paul worshipped, and Timothy worshipped, and we worship. God also desires that all uh, sorts of human beings be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth because this one God has only provided one person to mediate between himself and sinners like ourselves. Verse 5 again, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the long-promised, anointed 
king, that is to say Messiah. Messiah means anointed one, and it's speaking of his kingly office in particular, although his priestly office as well, undoubtedly. But Jesus of Nazareth was that long promised, promised by God in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, the long uh, promised king who would save a people for himself. And the fact that God had provided only one mediator is another uh, basis for or reason for why God desires all men to be saved. Now, Paul does not, let me note this, Paul does not spell out exactly why these two truths, that there is one God and one mediator also, that he doesn't spell out why those two truths provide the basis for what he said in verse 4 when he said, God who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He just sticks a four in there and says, for there is one God and one mediator. A little perplexing um, when you think about it. But Paul just simply states that this is a fact. Because there is one God and one mediator, therefore he desires all sorts of men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, both Timothy and his spiritual flock in Ephesus would have been familiar with this line of reasoning that Paul is using here, even though it's unfamiliar probably to most of us. I would say probably all of us. It's unfamiliar to me. Um, But both Timothy and his congregation in Ephesus would have been familiar with this line of reasoning that Paul is using here, because you know what? He used this very line of reasoning um, several years earlier in his uh, in his letter to the Roman church, to the Romans. He said over in, uh, actually I won't, well yeah I will, uh, Romans 3 verses uh, 29 to 30, he says there something very similar. He says, <coughs> when he's talking about the Gentiles versus the Jews, he says in verse 29, or is God, actually read, let me read the previous verse, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. And then notice this. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. He's essentially using the same reasoning here in Romans 3 as he's using over in Timothy. Now, like I say, Timothy, uh, as Paul's close associate, would certainly have been familiar with the contents of Romans, the letter to the Romans. That would have been widely circulated quickly. So Timothy knew that letter and what it said, and had likely already shared the contents of Romans with his congregation. Oh, I, I would think I would say it's almost a, a certainty that he did so. And so these folks understood Paul's reasoning here. I can't say I fully do, but it's a fact. Because there it is, the word for in verse 5, connecting the thought in verse 4 in particular with verse 5. Well, God desires um, that all men, uh, all sorts of people be saved because this one mediator that he just spoke of in verse 5, that he he provided, uh, gave himself up as a ransom and he gave himself up as a ransom for all categories of people. Who gave himself, verse 6, 
speaking of the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for, here it is again, all. For all. That the Messiah would had given his life as a ransom for Gentiles as well as Jews shouldn't have come as a surprise to anyone raised in a Jewish household in Paul's day. Why shouldn't it have come as a surprise? Well, because the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah in particular, the first five books and the first book of the first five, in it, God indicated that he desired to bless the Gentile nations. He did this 2,000 years earlier than Paul's day in his covenant that he made with Abraham. Over in Genesis 12, should be familiar to many of you, starting in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 3 where the punchline is. Now the Lord said to Abram, Genesis 12, let you get there if you want to turn. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Remember, folks, he went west this morning, those of you who were in Sunday school. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And then he says this, And in you meaning Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Every Jew should have known that verse. In Paul's day, sadly, the Abrahamic covenant's teaching that Yahweh, the God of the Jew, one day intended to have mercy upon all the families of the earth, the Gentiles in other words, that teaching had long been overlooked by the by Israel's rabbis and teachers down through the centuries. They just kind of apparently ignored that last part of the Abrahamic covenant there. Because sadly, uh, most of most Jews, as we know from reading the New Testament, you know, the, the Gentiles were, were were dogs. Actually the, the Samaritans were dogs. Gentiles were in some ways worse. Um, they wanted nothing to do with them. Let them all go to hell. What's important is we, Jewish folks, we descendants of Abraham, biological descendants of Abraham. And of course the Lord rebukes them and so does Paul for that, uh, that unbiblical attitude. But so Paul is making this point that Jesus died as a ransom for all categories of people. Jews and Gentiles, uh, Caucasians and blacks, Asians and in, uh, Native Americans, and so on, and so on, and so on. And that God desires that all categories of people should be saved through the uh, uh, redemptive work of Christ, through his ransom, is evidenced, Paul says, by my own ministry. Look at verse 7. So he's offering up uh, uh, corroborating evidence, if you will, for uh, verse 6, for uh, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And for this, uh, I was appointed, this uh, this uh, 
this testimony uh, to, to Christ and this witness to Christ and him being the Messiah for all. And for this I was appointed, a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. You see, his appointment by the Lord Jesus himself to proclaim the gospel principally to Gentiles confirms the fact that what he, of what he's saying here, that the word all in verses 1, 4, and 6 means all categories, all kinds, all groups of human beings. There's a, uh, there's a wicked doctrine out there. I say doctrine, it's not Christian, but it poses as Christian, called kinism. It basically says that, um, well, without going into it uh, too much, it's uh, the white race is what uh, Jesus died for. Caucasians. It's, uh, it's damnable. Anyway, uh, they clearly... Those who claim to be Christians and hold to that view clearly haven't spent any time in this passage. What's the, what are the implications uh, of the fact that God desires all categories of people, all groupings of people, types, sorts of people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? Well, a couple things come to my mind I want to share with you. First, since the triune God, the true God, Yahweh, wants all categories of people with him in the new heavens and the new earth, when all is said and done, you and I should want that as well. Everybody. Of all stripes and shapes and sizes and colors and backgrounds. And if you don't, that's sin. You need to repent of it. If there's prejudice in your heart. Also, another implication of this passage, it means that you and I, each of us, should desire and be willing to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, with anybody who God providentially brings across our path and provides us an opportunity to share with, regardless of his gender, his race, his nationality, how he looks, his socioeconomic status, or his past, or where he lives. Add whatever you want to to that Regardless, we should desire and be willing, folks, to do that. That might be a little uncomfortable, especially for somebody who is not uh, part of your culture or your socioeconomic group. Doesn't matter. You're supposed to. You're supposed to, your love for the lost, your desire and your burden for the lost should overcome your discomfort with approaching somebody who doesn't look like you or wasn't raised like you or has done things that you haven't done, sinful things, or hasn't done something that you have done, whatever. I hope you all see that this passage makes that very clear. We need to go into all the world. All the nations are God's concern. All the peoples of all the nations are God's concern. Uh, Christ died for all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds. 
So, a result of the fact that God, and it is a fact, that God desires all categories of people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, is, and here's my second point, God desires all categories of people to be prayed for by you and me, that is to say, his covenant people. Look at verse 1. For, uh, first of all then, I urge... And he could, a you could be in there. It's not present in the, in, in the, in the Greek, but it's obviously implied. Uh, I urge that you and others, Timothy, as well as yourself, that entreaties uh, and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all. There it is. All men. All people. All categories. So he's saying that, first of all, Pray for everybody that the Lord puts on your heart that regardless of what their background is, we need to be praying. You, Timothy, particularly as a minister, you need to be praying. I need to be praying as a minister. But it's not just, it's not just elders that uh, this, is, this, is, uh, this exhortation is for. It's for all people. That's why it ended up here in the scriptures that you're reading and I'm reading. So he wants us to pray for everybody, including our enemies, right? Sermon on the Mount? Including our enemies. So if we've got if we got to pray for our enemies, we certainly have to pray for the next door neighbor, even if he comes from Yugoslavia or something. Oh, there is no such thing as Yugoslavia anymore. Uh, Hungary. There we go. Or the North. He's a Yankee. Heaven forbid. But then. Paul, so he says, pray for everybody. But then he singles out a particular category of people for special attention in this passage. Verse 2. He speaks of the civil magistrates, or the rulers, the governors of the land. He says, pray for them in particular. For kings and all who are in authority. Kings, uh, of course, monarchies of all uh, stripes and varieties, or monarchy, rather, was the form of government anywhere you went in Paul's day. Now, it looked a little different, but there was always, there was always, almost always, somebody at the, at the top of the pyramid that dictated everybody else. The emperor, you know, uh, uh, the uh, the dynasties in China, uh, the the chieftains in North America, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There was always somebody who was a kingly figure, a monarch, uh, ruling, uh, and that's true through not just in Paul's day, but throughout most of human history. It's only recently that democracy and republics and so on have uh, have uh, come sprung up. So he's saying, if you if you got a king, you got to pray for the king. But Paul then adds this inclusive statement, and all who are in authority. There's the word all again. And all who are in authority. In other words, when he says, and all who are in authority, what Paul is saying is it doesn't matter what level of authority he is at. All of society's rulers are in view here in Paul's phrase there, all who are in authority. Whether they are local rulers 
magistrates, regional rulers, magistrates, or national rulers or magistrates. They're all in view. It's a catch-all, that phrase. And just as believers in Paul's day were required um, through this letter to Timothy to pray for their civil magistrates, so too are believers today. So too are you and me. Why? What reasons does God, for what reason does God want we who are believers to pray for our civil rulers? Well, first, first reason offered in verse 2 is so that we who are believers might live a tranquil and a quiet life. And in order for us to lead such a life, those who rule over us in the civil realm should need to really govern in a way that promotes societal stability and peace. We need that. We Christians need that. For you see, a society which is stable and peaceful provides the best environment for Christians to live lives that honor and please God, according to Paul. He says there at the end of verse 2, for kings and for all who are in authority, in order that we, meaning we believers, may lead a, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's the Christian life summarized there, in all godliness and dignity, the, the moral uh, component of, the, of Christian life. We are to live this way as Christians. We're called to live godly lives, dignified lives in an undignified world. And he's saying the best way to do that is to have civil stability and peace. And so we need to pray that our rulers will govern in just such a way that peace and stability are uh, uh, more or less present in the environment in which we live. And that's for the sake of God's people, for the church, that we need to pray for our civil rulers. And of course, it's pretty obvious, I think, our civil rulers will be better equipped to govern us wisely if they're believers. So you and I ought to pray for their salvation if we suspect or know that they are unconverted. Because while God can give common grace to an unbeliever, who never comes to Christ, but give him sufficient um, wisdom to uh, to help him govern in a halfway decent way, even though he doesn't know the Lord, he's going to be a better ruler if he knows the Lord. So we ought to pray for the salvation of our those over us. So that's the first reason uh, why God uh, that is mentioned here why God wants us to pray for our civil uh, rulers, and the second is mentioned in verse three, and that is. To do so is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. And it's good and acceptable. That makes perfect peace, perfect sense, rather, that it should be good and acceptable to God that we do this uh, in light of the fact that he is a Savior uh, who desires all sorts of people to be saved, including, by the way, rulers. Including rulers. Magistrates. So how do we apply this? <clears throat> well, again, fairly obvious, I think. Um, 
But first of all, you and I need to be praying regularly for those who are over us, authoritatively over us in the civil realm. And by the way, while while this passage is really speaking about civil magistrates, it applies to anybody who's an authority over you. You need to pray for those who are an authority over you in the family. Kids, you need to be praying for your mom and your dad and your prayers, that the Lord would give them wisdom to rear you, uh, raise you, uh, and to... to, uh, take care of the household well. And uh, we also need to be praying for those who are in authority over us uh, in, uh, in the church. Please pray for me. I desperately need it. And I think the other elders would chime in and say, yes, me too. Wherever you, and employers, pray for your employer who has authority over you uh, as well in the workplace. But this is speaking about the civil magistrates uh, in particular here. So, you and I are to pray for our those in authority over us, regardless of who the person is, regardless of what political party he belongs to or she belongs to, regardless of what his policies are, regardless of whether or not he's a Christian or not. Regardless, regardless, regardless. Examples of people that you and I here living in East Texas ought to be praying for We need to be praying for and should be praying for on a pretty regular basis, I think all of us, the mayor of our respective towns. Mark Hicks in the case of Lufkin, Jimmy Mize in the case of Nacogdoches. We ought to be praying for our town council members. I don't know the names of all of them, and I'm not going to give them to you here, even if I did. But you need to pray for your state house representative. That would be Trent Ashby and Lufkin and Travis Clardy. Clardy? Clardy? Whichever. uh, In Nacogdoches. I looked these up, in case you didn't pick that up already. Um, you need to be praying for your state senate representative, and for both NAC and uh, uh, Lufkin, uh, Angelina counties, that's Robert Nichols. You need to be praying for your U.S. House representative, that's Louis Gomer. You need to be praying for your U.S. Senate representatives, that those are John Cornyn and Ted Cruz. And yes, you need to be praying for your president. Joseph Biden, and the members of his cabinet. God has placed all those folks over us. God did that, not the electorate. And we need to give them proper respect, uh, even if we disagree with something they hold to. Uh, We need to give them our uh, prayers. And we need to pray for those who are unconverted that the Lord might convert them. But we need to pray some other things, too, for such individuals. We pray, need to pray that the Lord would guide them, believers and unbelievers alike who are in power over us. We need to pray that God would give them wisdom. We need to pray that God would enable them to govern with integrity, which many of them don't do, sad to say. Which includes uh, sticking... Uh, defending uh, the Constitution. We need to pray that they would, God would thwart any evil that they might be contemplating, uh, enacting, or legislating. And we need to, yeah, just pray for the Lord's mercy upon them. We need to pray these things, folks. I'm not good at this, by the way. I do it here in front of you, but I not too often do I 
prayed like I should for the civil magistrate uh, in my private uh, times of praying, and uh, I'm convicted by this. You should be, you know, two if you're in my shoes. So that's the first uh, application here. But then there's uh, another application, and it's found in verse 8. Verse 8 is actually a transition verse between the first seven verses and the remainder of the uh, of the chapter. But it actually, it's a hinge, and it applies to verse, uh, it's tied to verses 1 through 7 by the therefore at the front end of it. It's also tied to verses 9 through 15, so I'm going to bring it up uh, next time when we talk about women in public worship, which is what the next passage is about. Uh, but uh, it's a hinge verse. But I think it belongs probably a little bit more appropriately to this um, uh, this message. So, so in light of the fact, coming from verse 8, what we read there, in fact, I'll read it. Therefore, I want the men in every place, and there, by the way, men means males, in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. In light of the fact that God desires all categories of people to be saved, and in light of the fact uh, that he desires all categories of people to be prayed for, in light of those two facts, believers in every place, in every place, men in particular, should pray to God for all sorts of people and should do so with the right heart. Um, I think holy hands is bespeaks the condition of the heart, not the not the skin of the hand. When he speaks of holy hands, it's a way of alluding to holiness in the individual who is praying, uh, who who doesn't have wrath in his heart towards his fellow man, isn't uh, isn't uh, prone to dissension with others. And so, you and I uh, are to pray everywhere, not just in church, but in our homes. You men, in particular, again. Because uh, he, he does mean males there in verse eight. Um, in family worship, we should be praying for our church, our our, uh, our nation's leaders, our our state's leaders, our city's leaders, and we should be praying with hearts that are not that are right with God, <clears throat> and that have a right attitude toward those for whom we are praying. Sometimes that's kind of hard, especially when we have strong disagreements with those who are in authority over us. Some of us do. But we need to pray rightly. Um, and um, that takes some work sometimes. But that's what's required of us because of our God. Because we have one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all sorts of people. And we are to emulate our God's concerns and love for the lost. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the fact that you are this enormously generous God who doesn't just want uh, biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. Doesn't just want... uh, Men in the kingdom doesn't just want Caucasians in the kingdom. Doesn't just want the rich in the kingdom. 
You want everybody, all sorts of people. And you indicated that by sending your son to be a, uh, a redeemer of all sorts of people. And you, t- you alluded to this back in the Abrahamic Covenant. We thank you that you're that God. Lord, would you please forgive us for those of us who have uh, been people who harbor partiality in our hearts towards uh, certain groups and against others. Please forgive us for these um, unholy attitudes that perhaps have been a part of our lives in the past. Would you please forgive us for any indifference that we have shown to people that don't look like us and their spiritual state that we have shown indifference to their lost condition. Lord, would you please forgive us for not being more uh, zealous in our evangelism of others around us that you brought across our path. Would you please make us more zealous, genuinely zealous for the lost? Give us your heart for the world, Lord. Um, A heart that is longs to see all sorts of people saved and and even to be used by you to bring about the salvation of a number of those people in our day before you take us home. Or if there's anyone listening uh, to this message who has never trusted in your son, the Lord Jesus, who is the only mediator, there is no other mediator. There's no other way to be reconciled to God but for, by trusting in Jesus, the God-man, uh, God the Son, and him alone. Would you please show such a one that he or she is not truly one of your people at this moment, that uh, he's been kidding himself or they've been, he's been, she's been kidding herself uh, just because they're good people, as the world defines good? And would you please give any unconverted individual a new heart right now with the corresponding faith to trust in Jesus alone uh, to be forgiven and get to heaven? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, Lord Jesus uh, instituted two holy ordinances uh, before he ascended into heaven. Uh, We call them uh, sacraments in our circles sometimes. Some people are uncomfortable with that word, but there's no reason to be. Just because it's been uh, misused elsewhere doesn't mean we can't use it. Um, But it's a holy ordinance that he instituted. um, Two, one is baptism, and the other is the Lord's Supper. Uh, And they are visible... um, proclamations, in a way, of the gospel itself uh, that uh, was peppered throughout the message that I uh, just preached, that Jesus is the only hope of sinners uh, and is a result of his uh, life uh, and then his subsequent death upon the cross, which uh, the meal particularly points us to, uh, and his subsequent resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven, we have, we have forgiveness from God. We are reconciled to God. We are, the mediator has has caused the uh, God to bury the hatchet with respect to us, to use a colloquial term or phrase. Um, and, uh, but the, the sacraments 
are, are visible pictures of that gospel message that a Savior has been provided uh, through the giving, his offering up of his life uh, for sinners. And record of the institution of the Lord's Supper uh, is found in a number of places in the New Testament, one of which is Mark chapter 14, so I'll read that to you, starting in verse 22. And while they, the disciples and Jesus, were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Um, The Westminster divines uh, gave an explanation of what the uh, Lord's Supper is, uh, a very uh, succinct and uh, biblically faithful explanation. I'm going to read that to you. It's uh, question 96 in the Shorter Catechism. The larger catechism is much larger, so we'll go with the shorter. The question is, what is the Lord's Supper? And the answer that they gave is, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament, wherein, by giving and receiving bread and wine, according to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth. And the worthy receivers are, not after a corporal and carnal manner, but by faith, made partakers of his body and blood, with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. And uh, that comes through the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper. Um, That is to say we are actively trusting in Jesus as we approach his table uh, and take his sacrament. We are actively trusting in him, looking to him for our right standing uh, with uh, with God, with the Father, the Spirit himself, um, and we are uh, in submission to uh, and in de- depending upon our Savior for all that we have that is good. And if you do that, uh, you are uh, worthily partaking. The uh, We believe that it is a, the Lord's Supper, like baptism, are signs and seals of the covenant. This is evident from uh, Genesis 17 and uh, uh, places in the New Testament as well. In fact, uh, here he speaks of the covenant. We just I just read it. This is my blood of the covenant. Um, the covenant's in view in both sacraments, and they are both signs and seals of the covenant of grace that uh, uh, God made with uh, Jesus as the first Adam, or the second Adam rather, and with us in Him, uh, we who are His seed. Uh, the seed of uh, of Christ, we, uh, the descendants of Christ, the uh, heirs of Christ, we are in that covenant as well through the covenant the Father made with the Son. And this meal symbolically portrays that covenant relationship. Uh, it symbolizes the broken body uh, and the shed blood through the elements in their handling. Um, but it's more than mere symbolism. It's erroneous to... it's. Uh, to say that it is mere symbolism. It's also a seal of the covenant of grace. That is to say, God is saying something as we partake of this, likewise with baptism. God is saying something. Uh, He is speaking, as it were. And in the case of the Lord's Supper, what he is doing is he is confirming to you 
the, um, uh, the veracity of his promises, his gospel promises, afresh. He's not only saying so through the scriptures themselves, but also through the meal that he is allowing you to come to and partake of with him. And it is a seal of the covenant uh, and its promises that he has made, confirming that uh, they are still good and they always will be. And because it's a sign and seal, it's also a means of grace. God the Holy Spirit, uh, it's referred to by Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16, as the cup of blessing. Why? Because if you drink it rightly, blessing comes with it. Not because of the elements, but because of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Spirit of Christ, uh, Christ himself, feeds you, uh, blesses you spiritually if you rightly partake of the cup and, and uh, by implication of the, uh, the bread as well, as you feed upon Christ in your hearts. This meal is not for everyone. It is only to be taken by those who know themselves to be uh, genuine Christians. And um, as a test of uh, uh, all Christians are supposed to be uh, associated with uh, a, a local church, a visible expression of the church, uh, the, uh, the, the confession says there's no ordinary possibility of salvation outside of the church, the visible church. Uh, and so, uh, though it's possible, there's no ordinary, uh, it doesn't happen ordinarily. And so... Uh, because we are responsible as elders for making, guarding the, the table, uh, we ask that if you're not a member of a local church uh, that's, in, that's an evangelical church that believes Jesus is the only way to God and it's only by faith that you lay hold of Christ savingly, if you're not a member of such a church, we would uh, uh, urge you to ask you to refrain, um, actually tell you to refrain from partaking. Uh, because that's an indication to us that you're a genuine Christian. Another congregation, an evangelical congregation, has affirmed the credibility of your profession of faith. Uh, and that's how we get to uh, guard the table here. So you need to be a member in good standing. Uh, you need to be of an evangelical church. You need to be uh, a Christian. And you must also not come if you are uh, under discipline for some reason, or if you are holding to or cherishing some sin or sins in your heart. You've got some sin that you're saying, God, you can't have this. This is my pet sin. Don't take this. You're, first of all, you need to know you may well not be a Christian. If you're, uh, you, have, you don't have a reason to believe you're a Christian if you are, if you are practicing some sin in your life and are not trying to put it off. You have no reason to think you're a Christian. You may be. But you have no reason to think so. You need to use this time to ask God for to break your heart and to make you uh, grieve over your sin and to make you uh, flee to Christ. But if you are wrestling with your sin, sins, I should say, uh, this is absolutely where you need to be and what you need to partake of because the Holy Spirit uses means like this and principally means like this to... Uh, strengthen his people in their in their fightings with evil that still lies within us. Uh, so if you're wrestling with sin, struggling, but you want to be rid of it, by all means, please partake with us uh, this morning. Let's pray now and ask the Lord to bless our uh, participation in this sacrament. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we 
We thank you for um, being a God who condescends, who descends. Um, Lord Jesus, that you are the uh, host of this meal, that you are here with us now. We thank you that uh, you are here in your grace because you uh, love your people, those for whom you died. That's us who are Christians. We thank you that you you don't just save people and then leave them to their own devices. You save them and uh, continue to work and make them more and more holy by your presence in our lives. And you use means such as this to bring about that further salvation, which which is what sanctification is and ultimately to bring us to ultimate salvation as we are glorified before your throne. And we uh, thank you that you provided this means to to uh, make us more like Christ, more like you. Would you please set these elements apart from the common use uh, that they are normally used for under the holy purposes for which we are about to use them? Would you please help us, each one here who partakes, to... Feed upon you, your body and blood, Lord Jesus, um, and what they stand for in our hearts by faith. Give us faith to cling um, afresh to you and to rejoice in you as we partake. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering in his name. Now give this bread to you. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please uh, take and then wait until we're all served and we'll eat the bread together and likewise with the wine.
body of Christ was broken for you. Take and eat. In the same manner, he also took the cup, and having given thanks, as we've already done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Please, again, wait until we're all served, and then we'll partake. And there's grape juice in the very middle. If you can't in good conscience partake of the wine, but we would urge you to partake of the wine. The blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to do what you did for us, to endure... um, your own infinite wrath uh, to take that indescribable suffering upon you that we are reminded of and the wines uh, burn in our lips. We thank you that you suffered so that we might not suffer for all eternity. And we thank you, Lord, for providing 
this means by which you would feed us, your people, spiritually. Lord, we ask that you would help us to go forth from this place with a renewed desire and determination to walk as becomes followers of Christ. We pray that we would hate our what remains of sin within us more than we hated it last week. And Lord, that we would love your law, which is not burdensome, but that we would love your law because we love you. And we ask that you would cause our love for you to grow, our desire for to commune with you in prayer and in Bible study to grow. And we ask that you would help us to be um, effective witnesses to others around us. Give us courage that we need to overcome our fears. Give us uh, uh, a burden uh, for those who are careening toward hell because they don't know Christ and they don't even know it. Help us to feel for them, to be cause our hearts to ache for them and cause us to be willing to do something about it by presenting the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.